0: What we have seen unfold in Acts two is so different from the world, the way the world looks today, doesn't it? As we've walked through, there have been miracles, things that we would say are probably, um, obviously, not continuing on today. Tongues of fire uh, and great uh, speaking in multiple languages of other people's, but at the same time seeing great results of the spirit work that are consistent with today's pattern. Things like the spirit working in people's lives to bring about conviction of sin. Today we're going to continue on and and we're going to see that what a true church looks like, what the early church looks like is a changed people, a transformed people. As we read our passage, you, we would uh, say it doesn't come anywhere close to what characterizes our world today. In fact, I would argue that the professing universal church as a whole in America often doesn't look much like what Acts 2 looks like either, does it? As I read through this passage and as I've thought through this passage the last couple of weeks, I've thought, you know, I really want our church to look a lot like this church. I want us to be like this. I want us to look like Acts 2. And I'm not talking about the signs and wonders that are performed through the apostles, but, you know, there's so many more verses in Acts 2 that do directly apply. Let's go with those. And I want to look like that. You know, it ultimately comes down to the Spirit's work in us, right? We need Him. We need the Holy Spirit to grab a hold of all of our hearts and ignite a fire within us for Him, a passion for Him. That's what we need to be crying out to this, Lord. That's who we need to be crying out to this new year, don't we? God, change my heart. I want to look like this. I want to be different. I guess this is my plea for you today is I want you to make that your prayer. <laughs> I want to look like this. I want to be continually devoted to the Word of God. So as we look at these results, I want to challenge you to think on this and meditate on this and call out to the Lord. We saw as we went through that there were some results that were given. And you can follow along with me. We already covered the first four of these results. But let's look at them again and briefly go over them. The results of the Spirit's work through the perfect sermon, literally the gospel, and all that the Spirit is doing on this first day of Pentecost. We saw conviction came in verse 37. Notice in your Bibles verse 37. What shall we do? Conviction came. We saw that Peter's message penetrated the listener's heart. They were confronted with their sin, and conviction resulted. Again, as we mentioned last week, the conviction is not an automatic thing. It takes the Spirit taking the Word and changing the heart and bringing about a conviction of sin. And we trust Him with that. Yes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Next we saw there was an exhortation from Peter in verses 38 and 39. We saw Peter gave a direct call to turn to Christ, repent, and obey Him, be baptized. He promised their genuine faith would result in being made right with God. And again, we saw that this was not a a, a, a testimony that... Uh, Being baptized is what saves you, but rather that genuine faith results in obedience in baptism. And therefore, you will be forgiven through genuine faith. And third, we saw determination. We saw that Peter was fully transformed by this time. His transformation was on display by continually exhorting them to avoid this sinful generation. The man who had previously denied Jesus was now determined to exalt Jesus and calling for full faith in Jesus continuously over and over. And finally, we saw the conversions. Those were found in verses 40 and 41, that is. The fruit of the Spirit's work through the Word was genuine conversion. In verse 41, you see it. As we saw, the result of genuine conversion was revealed in what the people did with the Word of God. They received the Word or embraced the Word. This was evidence of what had happened to their hearts. One of you called me this week, yesterday in fact, and asked, If somebody denies the inerrancy of Scripture, can they still be a true believer? If somebody denies that whether the Scripture is exactly true, if it, it has no error in it, can they still be a true believer? Yeah. I said yesterday, you know, it, when you ask me these hypothetical questions, sometimes they're very difficult because you're asking me to look into the heart of a hypothetical person and tell you whether they're a saved person or not. <laughs> Do you understand how impossible that is? <laughs> I said yesterday... This may mean a person could be immature in their faith, but still possibly true follower. In other words, they might question certain things in Scripture. I would argue uh, some that say that six-day creation is not true. In my opinion, they are starting to question the inerrancy of Scripture, that it is true and it's what it says. That's my argument. So would I say that all those people are unbelievers that believe in a long Period of time. No, I'm not going to say that. Some of them are believers. However, I will tell you this if a person is constantly, continuously questioning the reliability of Scripture and they never mature out of a denial of the truthfulness of Scripture, in other words, they never stop this and they continue in this pattern, then there should be very little assurance of their salvation. They should not be sure this is truth, and this is a true believer. Why? Why do I say this, that they shouldn't have any assurance? And we should tell them that you shouldn't have any assurance. Because what we do with the Word of God reveals where our heart is. Do you understand? And this is true here in Acts 2, right? They received the Word. And by receiving the Word, they showed that they were genuine believers, These people in Acts 2 received the word of the Apostle Peter because the Spirit was working on them. Again, anyone who is consistently questioning Scripture should be concerned that they may not be right with God. Don't have assurance. Now today, we're going to look at the next three results of the Spirit's work through the word of God. We see the Spirit's work through the word of God preached by Peter on Pentecost. Let's look at the fifth one. Fifth, devotion. Now, this is a loaded verse. Look at it. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I almost preached the whole sermon on just this verse. Last night, I was very close. (laughs) This one is a loaded one. This verse would be one that you should mark your Bible, circle it, and say, does my life reflect this? right here this would be the one right here that everybody in the church should take and say do i look like this this is devotion ladies and gentlemen notice first the word saying devoting themselves they were continually devoting themselves the word devoting means to adhere to to persist in to attach oneself to to be devoted to, to continue in, to persevere in. This word is a pregnant word for sure. These converted hearts are attached to several things. We see that they are attached to the apostles' teaching first, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Again, as we have constantly in Scripture seen Converted hearts are committed hearts. You get it? Mark it down. Converted hearts are committed hearts. Notice their devotion was not temporary either. Notice in verse 42 it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The Greek construction of this sentence makes it emphatic that their devotion was constant. They were persistent in their commitment to these four spiritual disciplines. You know, sometimes I'm told, how come every time you come and counsel, or I come to you and counsel, you tell me that you need to pray, you need to read your Bible, and you need to speak with other people and have them hold you accountable? (laughs) It seems like you tell me the same thing every single time. (laughs) it's because it is the framework of the Christian life. It is what we're about. This is what we are continually doing. This is what we are continually persevering in. These people, this early church, was persistent in their commitment to these spiritual disciplines. Again, 1 John and James make it clear that this this consistent commitment is what characterizes a born-again believer, correct? This is what a born-again believer looks like. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is what they look like. I find it revealing that our current Christian culture in America emphasizes a commitment to outreach first. And the spiritual disciplines often take the back seat. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, I'm not saying that, Outreach is not important. You better listen closely or you're going to miss the whole point. But I think the emphasis even in Scripture here is pursue God. Pursue Him through these spiritual disciplines. And then outreach is going to be natural. It's going to happen. The church is often driven by outreach programs. Everything is centered around making the unbeliever comfortable and accepted in the church. But in the early church, the opposite was true. Man, come to our church. What do we do? We study the Bible all the time. We sit under the apostles' teaching all the time. We find ourselves praying for long periods of time, and some of our kids fall asleep while we're praying. Reminds me of New Year's Eve. In the early church, the emphasis was on the four spiritual disciplines. Notice, however, that the results are automatic. Automatic evangelism. If you look down in verse 47, obviously they had to keep hearing the word. Other people had to be hearing the word because it says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Look, evangelism happens. (laughs) It's It's not something that you have to have necessarily a program for. Pursue God and it's going to happen. Trust me, you don't walk up to somebody that's lost if you have the joy of the Lord in your heart and not want to share it. Does that make sense? So we pursue the spiritual disciplines. These four especially. We must be continually committed to Scripture, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. I believe wholeheartedly that if we are a church committed to these four spiritual disciplines, God will use us to share the gospel with many people. I'm I'm convinced of this. So let's look at these four spiritual disciplines and kind of break them down a little bit. They were continually committed to, first, the Word. The Word. They were continually devoting themselves to the Apostles' teaching. During the early days of the church, the four gospels had not been written and the epistles had not been written, correct? You understand that? But God established these 12 men to be His mouthpiece. They were the Lord's witnesses as Jesus has established in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea. The fact is, is that God was speaking literally through these men, special revelation, direct revelation. The apostles spoke the authoritative word of God. Until the New Testament was completed, they were, instruct, they, they were the instruments of God's special revelation. These were special guys. And, and, and as much as I'd love to claim something like that, I don't have that gift. But I have the gift of their word. I have what they said. I have what God said through them in the scriptures. So we study it. We're like them. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. These men were special. Verse 3 to 4, it says, "...how will we escape if we neglect a great salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard." God also testifying with them. What is this? That's the apostles. How was he testifying with them? Both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. I, I, I'm not completely convinced on this, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through it. I, I'm almost convinced that all the gifts of the Spirit, almost the apostles might have had them all. You don't have full proof on this, but. It would be as if the Holy Spirits were gifted, empowered with all of these things. They could literally speak in other tongues. They could prophesy. They could do all of this. These were special men that God had given to give his special revelation. And the people got it. When they got a regenerated heart, what did they say? That's the shepherd's voice. When they speak, oh, that's the shepherd's voice. I want to hear this. You know, uh, some of us like to. Some of y'all have asked me the question about the canonicity of the scriptures. How do we know that the Bible is the Bible? The sheep know. The, the sheep know which one's the voice of God. I pick it up and I say, "That's God's word." Was it was it debated among true Christians? I don't think so. True Christians look at it and say, "Yep, yeah, that's it." This is the word of God. That's what they did with the apostles teaching. Hey, these guys are speaking the word. The spirits worked in their hearts, so they are automatically attracted to it. I'm pretty sure you have all heard everyone who preaches from this pulpit emphasize a personal devotion to God's word too, right? We want you to be devoted to scripture. Please, ladies and gentlemen. And look, I'm going to challenge you here. It's more than just uh, uh, reading Christian books. It's more than reading commentaries. It's more than um, even listening to sermons online. I love John Piper. I love John MacArthur. And y'all can listen to him all the time. But come on, start reading your Bibles. Spend more time in your Word. Let's memorize Scripture this year. True believers are committed to Scripture. Because we know it is where we learn about our God. We want to know him, right? So go to the word. Scripture repeats this theme continuously, doesn't it? Everywhere you look in scripture. Psalm 1 1 to 2, like we read today. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, don't go other places to get your information. But his delight is in, where? The law of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. This is what believers do. We meditate. We go to the Word. We think on the Word. The Word is what we like. We delight in it. It is finer than the honeycomb, as Psalm 19 states. How about Psalm 119, 14? I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as in all riches. Oh, how about that for a convicting word? Is that convicting? Well, here, let me give you what it means in a sense. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. I rejoice in your word and what it says we should do and who you are. I rejoice in your word as much as in all riches. Oh, hopefully that's us. You see how psalms like this come alive with a regenerated heart and you look at Acts 2 and they were selling everything and giving to those that had need. Why? Because the word, the spiritual discipline was having its effect in their life. They rejoiced in the word of God. Psalm 1911, Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. How many of you are sick and tired of sinning? Treasure the Word of God in your heart. It has an effect, it helps you to avoid sin. This is great, isn't it? Psalm 37:31. The law of His God is in His heart, His steps do not slip. Treasure the Word. Put the Word in you pursue it, continually devote yourself to it, as the early church did, right? That's what we want to do here. This is what we are, right here. Simple, not complex. We want to know the Bible more. Psalm, Isaiah 51, 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness of people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. In other words, you got the law in his heart, you got it there. You have the groundwork to, to obey the command. Don't fear the reproach of man. These truths are foundational for us. Scripture is what is our life blood. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, one of my favorite verses, 2 and 3. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Oh, what a glorious verse, isn't it? What a great section. What do you long for? Now, again, what they did in Acts 2 was just repeated in the epistles. He just turns around and tells the, the, the apostles, just told them what they should do, and here he's telling them, long for the word, just like we were devoted. Long for the word, that's what you have to do. That's what believers do, that we may grow in respect to our salvation. Beloved, the early church was committed to the revelation from God, right? We, too, should be committed to the Word of God. By the way, this is the perfect time to exhort all of you to commit yourself to read and study the Scriptures this year. Now, I know... Some of us are like, should I set a, a, a resolution, a New Year's resolution? I, I've had people tell me, no, I'm not doing any New Year's resolutions. Well, okay, then take out Jonathan Edwards's 70 resolves. Okay? How about this? Why don't you just resolve to read your Bible this year? Pursue it with all that you have more than anything. How about this one that I'm, 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 I'm working towards, and, and something I'm just striving for with me is before I roll out of the bed in the morning every day I'm going to do, I'm going to pray and I'm going to read a little bit of scripture. Nothing else is going to take first place over God. That's going to be the thing I think on first, every day, no matter what. In our technology age, that's very hard. Because you you hear those chirps all night long. You hear those texts coming in. Somebody might be hurting. I've got to pick up my phone and check. Oh, somebody called me. Oh, somebody needs me. Priority, I need God. That's going to be my priority. <coughs> By God's grace, right? Beloved, systematic theologies and Christian books are great, but the greatest need of our church today is to read... Study, memorize, and meditate on the pure milk of the word. That's what we need. The early church was continually devoted to it. The apostles' teaching. Second, notice they were also continually devoting themselves to fellowship. It says literally they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. This is the first time in the New Testament the word fellowship is used. Fellowship is not described it is not used to describe the relationship among the disciples before Pentecost. Matter of fact, if you look at the gospels, often the relationship between the disciples is described as competitive, prideful, but now it seems to have changed. A dramatic shift. Something different is happening. The answer is the spirit of God is doing a transforming work in these men. Those 12 men that fought for who's the greatest in the kingdom are now fellowshipping together. They have all things in common. There isn't a battle. There isn't a battle going on for who is the leader. Many of you have heard the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia. It is related to another Greek word used in the near context, koina. And it's found in verse 44, 242. Notice, it's found at the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 44. It says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. That word common is literally koina. It's the idea, when you put it together, it's the idea of having all things in common or sharing things. Fellowship is to share things, or to partner in, or to have a common purpose. Koinonia is associated with communion, or close relationships, or partnering together. The early church was committed continuously to partnering together for the gospel. They were committed to each other in their pursuit of the glory of God. Think about this beloved fellowship is more than just hanging out together and talking about the things of the world that's not what we're talking about in fellowship here this is not what they were doing they didn't get together and talk about the latest sporting event now that i'm not saying that sporting events you don't talk about sporting events and you don't don't take this and make this a legalistic issue i'm not saying don't talk about sports What I'm saying is is the primary idea behind biblical fellowship is having things in common and partaking together in the process of glorifying God. Coming together. They had things in common. And the thing in common was the gospel. Beloved, the fellowship of the early church was Christ-focused fellowship. The fellowship of the early church was sacrificial fellowship. We see this fellowship in verses 44 to 47. It's literally an illustration of this biblical fellowship. Look at it. Verse 44. And all those who had believed were coming together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them. Again, sharing them with all as anyone might have need day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. Oh, I can't stress this enough. Biblical fellowship is not getting together to meet uh, some special need for a friendship or a socialization. I... Look, in other words, you don't fellowship to get a friend. Do you understand what I'm saying there? You don't fellowship. Biblical fellowship is not getting something. It's not coming together to say, what can I get? I need something. That's not biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship is coming together to sacrificially serve brothers and sisters in the Lord. To come look, this is so hard. But I want you to listen to me. I want I know some of you are like, Well, I really only want to do one thing in this church, and that is I want to be able to teach. Okay, we got a lot of teachers in this place. You realize that? We are a gifted church. We are very gifted, aren't we? I mean, look at Sunday school, it's amazing. And then you got ladies too that could teach the ladies' Bible, say we got all these. Listen, listen to me. You're not on the shelf if you're not teaching. There's plenty of things you can be doing. There are people that have needs. We need to be serving each other. Do you understand? Beloved, fellowship, is coming together and partaking in the gospel ministry. And it doesn't mean just teaching. It's serving. It's loving each other. Listen to what they did. You say, well, Mike, I don't have anything. Do you have a job? You do. Do you give? (gasps) Pastor Mike said you should be giving. Yeah. You should be giving. Look, I don't want your money. I don't want your money. I I, I don't. I want you to participate in the ministry. I want you to enjoy the common good that we are proclaiming the gospel to people. Look what fellowship is. Fellowship is coming together. Biblical fellowship is having all things in common. Fellowship is sharing their property with all as anyone might have need. Fellowship is continuing with one mind in the temple from house to house. Fellowship is taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Fellowship is praising God together and having favor with all people. You know, I'm convinced I could preach a full series of sermons just on these six revelations of biblical fellowship. Coming together? Biblical fellowship... Is coming together, being one-minded, sacrificial, both formal gatherings and informal gatherings, eating together, being together with true joy, being real with each other, worshiping together, bringing favor from even the world, even because of our common kindness that's on display. Listen, people should look at the Grace Bible Church and look at the way we're interacting and go, I like those people. You say wait a second, I thought you said the world's going to hate you. I thought Jesus said the world's going to hate you. Yes, there are going to be plenty of those times. You can read 1st Peter and get plenty of those, but the reality is is that that doesn't have to we're supposed to try to be at peace with all men. Listen, if we're we're getting along, we're just being gracious to each other, sharing, loving, providing meals, people are going to look at you and go, "Man, these are really nice people. These people love people. <laughs> it should be obvious. This is what biblical fellowship looks like, right? This is what the early church was devoted to. And that's why people, having favor with all people, all people were looking at them and going, man, they are kind. They sure are sacrificial. Man, nobody in their whole er- area, that, uh, that whole 3,000 people, nobody has a need. They're always being provided for all the time. Does that look like our church today? That, Especially the universal church? I'm afraid not in America it doesn't look that much like that, does it? So I guess we're all a little bit like a cessationist after all. Another thing ceases. Should it? Should it? I think this shouldn't cease, should it? Biblical fellowship shouldn't cease. This is what the early church was devoted to. This is what the early church did. There are many churches who proclaim they are committed to biblical fellowship. But often they fail to do what they say they are committed to. So how do we accomplish this? By the way, just even in the beginning of our church. I think we've learned a lot in the beginning of our church. It was for a while for the first two or three years it was tough we had twenty to thirty of us and we were the faithful few and that was our problem we thought we were faithful what I mean by that I think we were kind of content with just being us and I think we I think especially myself I learned hey opening up my house on Sunday afternoons it's hard my poor wife she's an amazing trooper but boy, there were some changes that happened when that happened. What was it? People started to look inside and see that we are just normal people that love them. Man, I—I I, uh, I almost said it. I have a dream. <laughs> 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 I have a dream that every church is open on Sunday. Everybody's house is open on Sunday. Everybody's house is open on Sunday and more people are bringing people to their house and we're all sharing and going from house to house fellowshipping together and sharing and loving one another isn't that what we're supposed to be doing how about that for a a biblical spiritual discipline one that's not nailed very often the discipline of hospitality fellowship we need that don't we So how do we accomplish this kind of biblical fellowship? I would suggest it comes from a church full of church fully aware of the glory of the gospel and sacrificially committed to one another. I believe the apostles taught the truths revealed in the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> I think that they, they taught a radical changed heart means people are radically different and they love each other. <laughs> people were loving their neighbor. People were turning the other cheek. People were sacrificing for one another. The early church was doing exactly what Paul later called the Philippians to do. Look at Philippians 2. This is what they're doing. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, again, these verses, I've said it so many times. I've preached these verses over and over since I've come to Tampa eight years ago. Matter of fact, when we were at that other church, we had verses four and five on the wall. (laughs) Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Does that need to be explained that's pretty easy, isn't it? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interest for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, I've said this public uh, probably a hundred times before, but biblical Christianity is about giving and sacrificing, not getting and expecting. So important. If we do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but regard one another as more important than ourselves, we will be totally different from the world. And that is the basis of biblical fellowship. Right? What does it look like today? I think it's very similar to how it looked back then. When people are hurting, make meals for them. When people are in need, Provide for them. Serving and giving both financially and our time. Visiting the hurting. We have people that we can visit in rest homes, nursing homes. Wow, that would be great, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? Counseling one another from the Word. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. You know... I couldn't wait to get here today. It was painful, but I couldn't wait to get here. Right now, we're going through some difficulties, as most of you know, with Luke. You know why I liked coming? Because almost all of you were concerned, and you came up to me and said something. How is Luke doing? I love that about our church. That's biblical fellowship. We have something in common. My concerns are your concerns. Your concerns are my concerns. I pray for you. You pray for me. That's what this is about. Beloved, again, have you ever wondered why you work? You're struggling. You're sitting there going, man, this job's got dead end. Man, why do I do this? I mean, come on. Well, the answer is short. You ready? Why do you work? So you can give. What? Yeah, that's why you work. It's one of the reasons you work. Did you know that? You worked That hour you went and worked, it was so that you could give to the body to share with those that don't have need. That's That's a... Or that have need, rather. Do you understand? both to give to your employer and also to provide for your family and for your church and for missions. Man, can you imagine? That's what I want to do. Don't you all want to do that? I'm going to support national pastors around the world that are going to unreached people groups and sharing the gospel with them. Don't you want to do that? Next time you're at work and you're saying, Man, this is a dead-end job. There's nothing. This is horrible. I made ten bucks. And I'm doing nothing. I beg to differ with you. Maybe that ten bucks can be spent to help somebody. Get the gospel to them. We have all things in common. That's what we're thinking. My job is your job. Does that make sense? Think about that for a second. You go to work for who? Us. That's a wild thought. Nobody thinks that way, do they? We think, we go to work for me. But you don't go to work for you. You go to work for God and for his people to share. And again, I don't want your money. I want your heart. Want your heart. I want you to enjoy Christ. And I want to have biblical fellowship. Having things and participating together. The early church was constantly devoted to the apostles, teachers, and fellowship. And then we see the breaking of bread. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. So what does breaking of bread mean? I believe it is most likely pointing to the Lord's Supper. However, I do believe that a meal was often associated with taking the Lord's Supper. I get this from Acts chapter 2, verse 46. You see, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together. "...with gladness and sincerity of heart." There's a distinction made there. Most likely, the idea was is that they would have a meal and take the Lord's Supper together. You can see how that would come when you get over to Acts, or 1 Corinthians. You see that how this is developed, this concept. Now, we see there is a formal gathering at the temple, right? In verse 46. But probably because the Lord's Supper was not allowed at the temple location, they took the Lord's Supper from house to house. But notice meals were associated with being coming together in those houses. So there is a distinction made in breaking bread and also eating a meal. Here we see the Lord's Supper was probably taken coupled with meals held together. As I thought through this a little bit more, I thought on our context a little. Here's a couple of implications regarding the Lord's Supper that we that may, we may draw from the passage. Number one, taking the Lord's Supper was common. It was something that was done regularly. Okay? It does appear that it was common. And it's a part of the fellowship greater banner. Do you understand? The Lord's Supper is a part of the fellowship banner. Okay? Taking the Lord's Supper was often was associated with a meal. It wasn't just a one little tack on at the end of the service as we're going to put it on the end of this service. Third, taking the Lord's Supper was an expression of both worship and fellowship. It's both. Fourth, the taking of the Lord's Supper was not as formal as as it's sometimes expressed today. Now, what what do I mean by this? I'm not completely convinced that we couldn't have the Lord's Supper in some of our home Bible studies. I'm not totally opposed to it. I'm open to that a little bit more. Now, with caution, and what I mean by this. You know, you'll see in a little bit why I have this caution. It'll say it. I get the sense that the Lord's Supper was a time for testimony and people talking about what Christ has done and how he's good and it was a part of a meal and then at the end they would have this Lord's Supper. At least that's the way it appears to me here. And also when you read 1 Corinthians, it appears to be somewhat like that. Not some little religious duty that we kind of have at the end, we tack it on, you know, okay, we did our duty. You know, I don't think that's all that it was. However, as I thought on this further, I thought... You know, it's very interesting. As you read through Acts, what happens after they establish these things and how beautiful the church looks initially, almost immediately there's corruptions that start to happen, correct? What happens in Acts chapter 5? Ananias and Sapphira, right? You know, one of the reasons why all that happened was because of them selling their stuff and everybody was selling their possessions, and so here you got somebody that's going to corrupt the very good thing that God's doing. Do you understand? And so God brings down the hammer. You've got all kinds of little corruptions. Then you take it over to Corinthians, and the the church in Corinth appears to have done the same thing. They had fellowship meals, and then they'd have the Lord's supper. But some were coming to the Lord's supper drunk. Why? Because the fellowship meal had been distorted. And the Lord's Supper had become distorted. Now here's one of the problems that I have with all this. Is I want to implement, and I think, and I'm I'm planning on talking to Mark and Ronaldo and how we kind of implement some of these little differences. How we can do it better. And I think we should be more committed to doing the Lord's Supper. But with the cautions that this is also a serious thing. That you must be examining. There must be people in place to help guard against it being taken haphazardly and done as not important. Does that make sense? Now, what the church has done over the years, y'all tell me, you can think on this on your own, but this is my meditations for the week. What the church has done is taken making a, a legalistic or even a ritualistic practice in the church, and has lost some of the beauty of the fellowship of the Lord's Supper. Do you understand? In reaction, oh, this is bad, let's do this, let's guard, protect, right? But they've lost some of this fellowship that's included with just sitting around the table, basking in the glory of Christ and saying, you know, let's take the Lord's Supper together. It reminds me of a class I had, Dr. Harris used to, at Southeastern, on the last day of class, we would have a worship service, and he would summarize the whole semester of all that we had learned in Isaiah, or Revelation, or, you know, it would just be like, wow, you know, you'd go in there, and it would be a full course meal of the Word, and he'd just give us all of it that we had learned for the whole semester, and we'd go, oh, this is glorious. And we'd be worshiping. We'd sing songs. they say, oh, let's take the Lord's Supper. And we took the Lord's Supper in the class. That didn't go over very well with all the Southeastern Baptist people. They're not doing it in the structure. It's not in that structured format. I think we need to be careful of that, don't we? I do think there's some room for us to... Reevaluate what we're doing when we do the Lord's Supper. Our worship of Him and what it's about. Does everybody agree with this? So, y'all be praying for the elders as we meditate on how we can help to implement this some more. We must resolve, though, to take it often. Agreed? We must resolve to try to include fellowship elements in it, I believe. We must resolve to think of it as an opportunity to serve one another as we look to the Savior's work. Now, what do I, what I mean by this? If they went from house to house, it means the person at the other house was probably preparing the meal and getting everything ready. Why do I say this? If we're going to do it more often, poor Sandy doesn't need to get dumped on every week to put together all the Lord's Supper. This would be an opportunity to serve. Do you understand? Can you imagine, I could see how this would work. A family hosts the Lord's Supper that day and do somewhat of a a hosting of it. Does that make sense? On a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, even at a Bible study. You invite one of the elders to come to your Bible study that night, and we all come together and we take the Lord's Supper together. I could see this working, I could see the fellowship behind it. Do y'all understand what I'm getting at here? I think this is what they were devoted to continuously. I think these things, this is what it looks like, worked out. And finally we see they were devoted to prayer. They were continually devoting. And and notice, ladies and gentlemen, yes, I did only one verse today. Sorry about that, but it's good stuff. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. This is literally... This could translate literally, and to the prayers. Why is it a plural prayers? It's probably pointing to the various types of prayers, like praise and thanksgiving and pret- petitions and intercession and confession. Both corporate prayers and individual prayers. The, pra- the phrase, the prayers, refers to all the various types of prayer that Scripture exhorts us to. Beloved, the early church was a praying church. They prayed individually. They prayed together. They prayed with prayer, praise. They prayed with petition. They prayed with confession. They prayed seeking protection. They prayed trusting in the sovereign God. They were a praying church. And I want us to be a praying church too. I want this to change. I'm convinced that this is our weak spot. Being honest, this is our weakness in our church, right here. This is it. Out of all the four, this is our weakness. Would you agree, Mark? I think so. This is our weakness. I mean, we've had Brad do something on Sunday mornings at 9, and I know some of you are like, that's a hard time to come. Then give us another time. We'll meet, right? We want to pray. We think as a church we need to pray more. I thought New Year's Eve, just hearing you pray was glorious. That was great. It was enjoyable when coming together and seeking the Lord. I think we need to do it more. So let's endeavor to do it, right? Let's resolve as a church body to pray more. Seek times to pray together more, right? Let's do it. We see one of these prayers, by the way, from the early church. By the way, they are theologically strong prayers, too. They're not prayers like, God is good, God is great, let us thank him for our food. Amen. Y'all all, any of y'all learned that one growing up? A few of you? Yeah, that's not what it's about. Come on. Look at these theologically strong prayers. Look at Acts 4. Listen, here's your... Here's your praying church, the early church. This is how they prayed. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said. Now, have you ever thought on that verse for a second? How does everybody lift up their voices with one accord and say that? Man, does that mean everybody was speaking at the same time? Everybody at the same time was saying, Oh, Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the seas. Or was it some were saying some parts of it and some were saying other parts of it? Or is it about the heart? Is it about the heart? In other words, did they with one common focus all agree in the prayer that was being said? I'd venture to say that. When somebody's praying, what are you doing? Are you agreeing and and affirming and adding to the glories that are revealed in the prayer? I think often, way too often, it's much like our dinner table. Mommy or Daddy prays, and if you happen to check by opening your eyes, you see that at least half of the crew is thinking about something else and looking somewhere else. Is this not true? Or we can teach them... Bow your head, close your eyes. And they're sitting there going, playing with their glasses or fidgeting or playing with their hair, but they got their eyes closed and their head bowed. One accord. What is this prayer? It's us coming together, together, corporately, praying together and affirming the truths of God. Here you go. Here's the prayer. Here's our prayer. You ready? Do you agree with this prayer? O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Amen. Do you agree? Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouths of our father David, your servant said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Amen. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Amen. What are they doing in their prayer? They're saying the gospel. They're saying the gospel in their prayer. That's glorious, isn't it? And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Amen. There's petition, there's affirmation, there's praise. There's recognition of need and dependence. And everybody in the room says what? We see they knew how to pray, and they were continually devoting themselves to it. So we've seen conviction, exhortation, determination, conversion, and devotion. Let's be this kind of church. Let's pray. Father, You are good and kind and glorious. Lord, Your Word is good. You have given a revelation of Yourself to us. And for this, we worship You. We praise You. We exalt You. Father, we also come recognizing that we are dependent people, needy people, Yes, Lord, we have needs. There are people that are hurting in this congregation. There are people that are, have sicknesses that are hurting, Lord. Well, we pl- we we call on you and we ask for your help, Lord. Lord, we have people in our church that are hurting with various difficulties at their jobs. And their hearts are not in their jobs. And they don't enjoy what they're doing in their and they're finding no peace, and they're they're hurting God, please help them find their satisfaction in you. Please, Father, help us. Father, we have children. Many of us have children that are, are lost, that don't know you. God, our hearts ache for their salvation. We long for them to know you, and to enjoy you, and delight in you forever. So we cry out to you, Lord, for salvation for them. Please save. Hosanna. Please save. And God, we also have a community. Our whole community, much of this city is lost, desperately sick. Roads are packed on Christmas, but on Sunday morning they're empty. No one comes to church. Very few. Lord, they need the word. Please, God, save. Please use us, God. Please fill this church with people that long for Your Word and that want You. God, we confess our own pride. We confess our propensity to think highly of ourselves. We, We confess that we often think we have it all figured out. God, we need You. Please help us as a church. God, this year... No matter what you bring our way, we pray that we will say, you are the Lord, and it is your hand that has ordained this. And that we will trust you, God. We pray that you help us to trust you. We believe, but just help our unbelief. Help us to trust you more. And Father, now as we take your Lord's Supper, and as we remember what you have done for for us in Christ, we pray that you will be exalted. We pray that our hearts will reflect on the gospel and then we will share this gospel with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.